Welcome to Hacker Public Radio. My name is Dan Washko, uh, and, and today I am going to begin a series of of shows, of episodes that discuss the Linux boot and initialization process. Now, I can't recall whether I did a similar show focusing on the differences between System 5 and BSD-style boot processes under Linux for uh, Today with the Techie, but I figure what, what, I, what I would like to do is to give an overview of the Linux boot process um, from start to finish and then go back and detail significant sections of the boot process in future episodes, including and not limited to how the device file system gets initialized, uh, looking at technologies such as uh, HAL, the hardware abstraction layer daemon, um, and uh, UDEV, and hot plugging, how that all works, and different different portions of how services are configured and actually started on the Linux-style system. So today what I am going to do is just do a, a cursory high-level view of the Linux boot process and all the way up until you get to the command prompt. Now, what's interesting about the different distributions of Linux, by and large, what you're going to find, uh, they're all the same. Uh, Linux is pretty much Linux. But when you're looking at the different distributions, primarily, primary differences occur uh, quite frankly, in the boot process and how the system is configured and, and whether it's a System 5 or a BSD-style system and the actual boot process, the, uh, which we will detail in a few minutes here, there are subtle differences between um, Debian-style systems, Red Hat-based systems, and, of course, Slackware and Arch Linux and other uh, different distributions. Uh, beyond the boot process and the configuration files, some of the other differences would be what patches they apply to the kernel. Um, for the most part, distributions generally support the same hardware, although commercial distributions may extend hardware support um, for certain binary-only drive uh uh, hardware components. SUSE may include different patches or stuff to their kernel than a Red Hat for support for different operating systems. Um, just by and large, you could still get all those patches if you wanted to collect them yourself and apply them from uh, the different manufacturers' hardware uh, driver websites or from the kernel enhancements at kernel.org. Uh, different kernels out there, pull all those together. Uh, it's a little bit of a task, but uh, it can have its benefits, and you get to actually learn what you're doing or what's going on inside your system. Then aside from that, uh, patching certain applications is a possibility, but generally there isn't that much of a difference between distributions. So what we're going to do is uh, just start at the beginning. When you turn on your computer, the first thing that the system does is does a hardware check and runs through POST, and the BIOS initializes the boot device. Now, unlike some other operating systems, Linux primarily uses the BIOS to initiate the bootloader process, and then that's it. It does not probe the BIOS to detect hardware or anything else, but just to initialize the bootloader uh, off the uh, 
preferred boot device. Now, let's just uh, assume we're going to be booting off of a hard disk here. Um, there are other types of boot devices, flash drives, CD, or, um, DVDs that you can boot from, but we're going to focus primarily on booting from a, a hard drive, uh, be it SCSI or ID, whatever. What it does is it looks for a initialization, a bootloader program, and the two main programs you're going to find under Linux are Lilo, that's L-I-L-O, and Grub, G-R-U-B. Now, Lilo was the old standard that was used way back in the day. It's one of the first ones I cut my teeth on, and Grub has been its predecessor, not so much by the same group, but has essentially replaced Lilo as the preferred bootloader of choice for most distributions. Now, there's a third way to boot Linux, and that's out of a Windows or DOS session using LoadLin, which will initialize the bootloader. Um, but we're not going to cover that right now. We're just going to look at probably the primary difference between Lilo and Grub is that Grub allows for a dynamic uh, loading or configuration on the fly at the boot process. Uh, both of them present you with a menu of options or images, kernel images that you have or other operating systems that are available that have been configured to boot from. But uh, Grub takes it one step further, which allows you to actually uh, specify through an edit option, a kernel that might not be present or an operating system that might not be in the actual menu file, provided you know the parameters to get that thing running. Lilo, on the other hand, the only thing you could actually do is pass a boot time option parameter, like Linux single, to the image sets you're going to be booting. The benefit of using Lilo as, or Lilo as opposed to, or actually using Grub as opposed to Lilo, is that on some distributions that don't like leave it up to you to initialize the bootloading process if you're using Lilo um, most modern distributions like Ubuntu, Debian when you upgrade the kernel or something will will make sure that everything is ready to go but you take a system like Slackware or Arch Linux which requires more hands-on um, you install a new kernel and you're running Lilo you actually have to initialize Lilo uh, if you don't do that and you don't have a default kernel or anything, you, you get kind of hosed there. You can't boot your system because it can't find a kernel. Now, Grub, on the other hand, you, like I said, you can dynamically load that kernel, uh, put that information in there right from the get-go, and, you, and you're, you're good to go. Uh, it'll allow you to boot the kernel that's on the system. Um, so it, Grub is definitely a lot more flexible. And in addition to the enhanced uh, booting process there, you are able to provide the similar parameters to the boot process that you can in Lilo. Well, anyway, once the bootloader initializes the kernel or kicks off the, the kernel, it uh, also may or may not load what is called uh, a RAM initializing RAM disk. It's a virtual disk, uh, an image that goes hand-in-hand -hand with the kernel. Um, there are kind of two kernels that you can run on a Linux system. There's a monolithic and a modular or a modular kernel. Now, a monolithic kernel has everything compiled into it that you would absolutely need. And when you are providing a distribution for a myriad number of systems, you're not going to go with a monolithic kernel. You're going to go with a modular kernel, um, which makes more sense. What a modular kernel does is, is provide just enough in the kernel to get things going and then everything else is loaded in via modules. Now, 
a modular kernel has one disadvantage that if you don't compile in the necessary hardware support for your system or it's not compiled in, it makes it difficult to boot your system up using that kind of modular kernel that's pretty uh, slimmed down. Therefore, they use what's called an initializing RAM disk, and that provides a virtual image, so to speak, of modules that pretty much cover the majority of systems out there, which then uh, does not require the need for a monolithic kernel or most hardware to be compiled into the kernel at boot time. So it's a system of, of getting around being able to initialize the required components of your hardware, like your file system, uh, the drivers for your disks, hard disks, SCSI disks, whatever, um, the necessary components to boot the system. It gets you just enough uh, to get up and initialize your, your file system and load the drivers or modules that are on your distributions or in your, your modules directory and get you uh, onto the process of running the rest of the machine. Now, there are some systems that don't need an initial RAM disk. Again, if you're going to use a monolithic kernel with has everything compiled in or your own kernel, you may not have to worry about there being a missing driver or anything, and you can forego the use of a, an initial RAM disk, initializing RAM disk. But by and large, most of the distributions out there today do do that and stick with a modular kernel. The advantage of a modular kernel is it's a lot smaller, and it only loads in the play exactly what you need modular-wise. So it takes up a lot less space and resources in the long run. So uh, the bootloader passes off um, control to the kernel, and the initial RAM disk gets loaded, and it's the uh, image actually gets mounted virtually. As the kernel boots and initializes the hardware and the file system comes up, it can unmount the initial RAM disk and begin to mount the root partition read-only to start to uh, continue loading the modules required for the rest of the system, doing some hardware probing and everything to match modules with the hardware that the kernel has found or the, the scripts have found at which point then the kernel turns over control to the ESPN init application. The init application is executed. Now that's of course short for initialization you can say. And what that does is it begins the process of loading up the actual software that you're going to interact with on the computer. It starts the services. Uh, that's the beginning level right here of actually getting the rest of um, the tools of your operating system running. Because, uh, you know, as we know, Linux is the name of the kernel, and it comes with a whole suite of tools in it, which is one of them. So what init does is it uses an application or it uses a configuration file on most systems called the Etsy init tab file. Now, here's where we start to get a difference between Red Hat, Debian, Ubuntu, Slackware, Arch Linux um, type distributions at the uh, init level. Um, by and large, the majority of distributions, Red Hat, Slackware, Red Hat's derivatives, are using the uh, init tab file. I believe some older distributions of, of Debian, Debian are still using the init tab, which is a, a file that you'll find in, in the Etsy directory that begins to describe how the system is going to be running. Um, what init tab 
one of the main things it does is set the run level of your Linux system. Now, a run level uh, defines what applications and what, what, what you're going to be running um, for the rest of your session. There are seven run levels, uh, zero through six. Now, zero is halt. Okay, stop, shut down machine has a run level of zero. Six, on the other hand, is reboot. Okay, so you'd never want to set your init directory or your init file to set the default run level to zero or six. That would be ridiculous. It would start up, shut down, start up, shut down. Um, now, the run level one is the Linux single user mode. No services are started, no network started. It's essentially repair mode. You can get into it by calling the kernel image that you want from your bootloader and specifying sig single after it. Uh, you generally don't want to run in Linux single user mode. You could also use the tell init program to drop down in a single user mode by passing tell init and the number one to the system. Uh, it's good during an upgrade process or if you need to configure something or stop a service that requires, in, that gets a little funky, you can bring it down to single user mode and you can bring it back up from single user mode to any other level. Like for instance, le run level two is multi-user with no networking. Um, one and two generally aren't used for anything other than uh, troubleshooting, configuration, repair stuff. You, well, one's primarily used. Now, three is uh, what the majority of systems used to be set for, and there's some controversy I noticed today as to what exactly is run level three. Run level three is a multi-user with networking. Okay, Now, on Slackware-based systems, run level three, that's it, multi-user with with um, networking, the standard system, you boot up into a virtual console, you type start X if you want to start the X uh, Windows uh, subsystem and, and run with a graphical X system. Now, on Debian systems, for instance, run level 3 actually starts the graphical interface using uh, GDM, KDM, or XDM. So they kind of, uh, what I consider run level 3 is not the same run level 3 in Debian. Okay, uh, Run level 4 is mo used, not used by most distributions. Um, otherwise, run level 4 is the same as run level 5, which is what I was accustomed to is a multi-user system running the X subsystem or X session using uh, GDM, XDM, or KDM as a login window, as a login uh, manager right there. Um, that was what I considered run level 5, which Debian considers run level 3, uh, or runs at run level 3. So on a Slackware system, run level 5 will put you into your graphical login um, and initialize your services for running X on login. And, of course, we just said run level 6 is reboot. Now, once the uh, sysinit, or the initialization file, is called um, the init tab, and specifies what run level it's going to run at. It then init runs the initialization scripts, and here again is a difference between Slackware and other Linux systems, which will actually say it's a difference between the BS style, BSD style, and System 5 uh, style of initialization scripts. On a top level, what you have with the BSD style is you have a, uh, a bunch of scripts in a directory. On Slackware, it's the Etsy rc.d directory, um, run control dot directory. In there, it's a series of scripts that get run 
upon based upon what run level that you have chosen. This differs from the System 5 style of, of uh, initialization in that, as opposed to an Etsy rc.d directory with a series of scripts, you have an Etsy uh, init.d directory that has a whole bunch of scripts in there for starting and start, uh, stopping certain processes. Now, those those scripts don't get called out of the init.d directory. Instead, what happens is, based upon what run level you have chosen, that runs or executes, looks in a directory called uh, etsy slash rc.d slash r and the run level dot d of, uh, of whatever run level you're running at. So, for instance, run level 3 would look at r3.d. Now, not all distributions adhere to putting it under the etsy slash rc.d slash r run level. Some of them just put it in etsy r2.d or whatever. Anyway, what it is is you go to that run level directory, and in there is a series of symlinks back to the files in the etsy.init. Dot D directory, and they're either preceded with a capital S or a capital K. And what these do is an S starts the service, whereas a K kills the service. So if you're running at run level one, uh, zero or one level one, or we switch to run level six, it has a bunch of kills uh, links in there that will kill the process that's running. Or, and uh, for run, like run level one, it might kill some processes and verify that some other ones are started. Whereas in something like run level three, four, or five, you're going to see a lot more S's for starting a lot of different processes and subsystems in there. So that's primarily the big difference there. You have one, uh, primarily one directory for initialization scripts or startup scripts in a BSD style system, whereas on a system 5 initialization system, you have a bunch of symlinks in a run level directory that actually get executed. Now, there's some other differences in there. Like, for instance, um, there's one file in particular called the sysinit file. Most distributions still use, which is an Etsy, uh, can be an Etsy uh, sysinit is the configuration for it, or etsy rcd slash rc sysinit, which is where you find it in the Red Hat system. Slackware is the etsy rc.d slash rc.s file in the rc.d directory. And Arch Linux has a etsy slash rc.sysinit file. Now, if you have an init tab and you look in there, you're going to find where the system initialization file is. Um, which calls some other basic system initializations prior to running the run level scripts. Uh, one thing I think I need to make clear about the BSD or the Slackware style of initialization is in addition to whatever run level script, or if you look in the Slackware directory, you're going to see a number of files in the etsy-rc.d directory. Is You're going to find a number of files in there called rc some number dot s, which is the script for running those, and those are your run level files right there. RC dot four, RC dot five, RC dot six, if they're available, you'll find those in there for uh, specific run levels. Um, there's some other subtle differences, but we're not going to go into those right now. Uh, 
anyway, uh, getting back to the sys uh, init file. Now, on uh, Ubuntu and some Debian-based systems or more modern Debian systems, you're not going to find a a sys, dot, a sys init file, or you're not going to find an init tab, init, uh, tab file. Instead, you're going to find the Etsy event.d directory, which essentially has the similar startup files that we have discussed. It breaks it down into individual files in there and begins to set your run level from there and start the necessary uh, applications that you'll run on boot. Once the scripts are run in either your BSD style or System 5 style of initialization, all the scripts are run, uh, the init then creates a handful of virtual consoles based uh, particularly using the MinGetty program. Uh, most times you'll have six virtual consoles that you can log into. Uh, if you're running a graphical session using XDM, GDM, you're still going to get those six virtual consoles. You'll find them on uh, one, two, three, four, five, and six, whereas seven will be the X system that you're currently running and also most likely the first session, the first virtual console will be where X is actually running from in, in that console. You won't actually be able to use the uh, first console. It'll have some debugging information or your session information in X in some cases. Uh, actually, you know what? Um, it might not be on one. It might be on another one, like uh, seven, or, or I'm sorry, six or eight. So it's not necessarily, but one of them is going to contain your X session debugging information. If you were to start X after you uh, have booted your system and you've been running what I call run level three, you log into a virtual console and start X, your your information of the session that's going on will be available in that virtual console session that you started X from, and then you will actually run X on virtual console 7. Um, it could be on a different console, 8, 9, or 10, whatever, but standard is 7 for that. So that's the entire Linux boot process in a nutshell. Uh, we focused a little more on what differences between System 5 and BSD styles, which is primarily what I wanted to get through, um, as a little more uh, focus on that in addition to the high-level view of the boot process. To recap, you have your, uh, you turn your system on, those posts, the BIOS passes, uh, or, or actually initializes the boot device, and control gets handed over to the bootloader, which allows you to choose what image you want to load or what operating system. From that point, uh, control gets passed to the kernel, which you typically use as an initialization RAM disk to initialize some hardware that's required for booting, which may not be uh, compiled into the kernel and virtual uh, drivers like your RAID or your uh, file systems so that it would be able to mount the root file system at that point and begin the uh, rest of the loading of the modules that you have and identifying your hardware so that it can pass off control to the init program which defines what run level you're going to run at and from there begins the process of, an, of kicking off be it a BSD style system or System 5 style system, the scripts to run the applications and processes and daemons um, that you prefer to run at that specified run level. It completes that whole initialization process by providing a number of virtual terminals that you can log into using the MinGetty program. 
and or it sets you up for a graphical login using uh, GDM, KDM, or XDM so that you can log into an X session. That's it in a nutshell. So next time we come back, we're probably going to look at another subsystem or look at uh, one of those those uh, processes in detail. I'm not might not stick with going from bootloaders to clearly defining the init uh, tab stage. I might just jump right into some other uh, subsystems. Not necessarily going to go into order, but keep on listening and uh, keep on participating, and have a great one. Bye. Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.